0: My guest in this episode of the Read All About It podcast is Alison McConnell. She's a football writer who, after graduating from university, initially started working with the Scottish Sports Agency. She then moved to the Celtic View, which is where our paths first crossed. And after five years at the View, which coincided with a very successful period for the club under Martin O'Neill, although he probably deserves more credit for that than Alison, she moved on to the Herald and Times Sports Desk. And for the next 14 years or so, Alison established herself as a top-class football writer in a profession that has, for too long, been considered a male preserve. Now, having made the move to freelance journalism, Alison continues to write and comment on all things football across a whole range of publications and media platforms. Alison, welcome to the Read All About It podcast.
1: Delighted to be here.
0: Now I mentioned, we'll we'll obviously go on on and talk about books, and uh, when you sent me a list of book choices, I I can tell people that you have and continue to agonise over your book choices.
1: I do. I I, I think uh, it's like anything I find that, that asks me to make a list that sort of gives rise to a particular panic, I think. I'm not a fan of lists. Uh, in fact, I actually oh, remember. I <laughs> remember discussing that with you over a Nick Hornby book, and I was saying every every Nick Hornby book seems to be focused on a list.
0: because high fidelity <laughs> is all about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we'll go into your choices. Your many, your many choices. My many shortly. choices. But I mentioned, obviously, yeah, I've known you for a long time. You've been working in, in football journalism for a long time, and it has been over the years. It's certainly still male dominated and. Has that been difficult for you in order to establish yourself, or do you feel extra pressure in terms of having to prove yourself? Because you know, sometimes people still have this kind of really old fashioned attitude about women in football. Thankfully, that's kind of on the way.
1: I don't think I do. Um, I'm not sure I've ever felt it, or if I did feel it, I'm not sure it was ever a conscious thing to focus on it and make it a concern or a worry. I think I've always just thought I have to concentrate on my job and just let everything else take care of it. I think I've been very, very lucky to have a job I've loved, to have a job that I've liked. Uh, when I was going through university, when I first had done a post-grad and then graduated, I had a year of doing temping jobs and I worked in McDonald's Out from fifth year at school, you know, worked in, in jobs that were draining, you know, a Sunday night you're thinking, oh my God, I, like you're dreading going back to work, so... I find myself very, very fortunate to have have spent the bulk of my career doing something that's been a joy, really, like you're being paid to watch football and, and give an opinion. So I don't think I've ever felt pressure. I would say in recent years, as there were changes at the Herald and Times and I got to cover bigger games and there was a bit more gravitas about what I was doing, I think I felt that I had the respect of my colleagues. And I think once you have that, there's a particular assurance it comes more than more than any outside noise or outside perceptions. I think if you feel as though you're perceived to hold your own among your contemporaries, then I think that tells you that you're probably doing something right. But even when I was starting out, I don't think I ever wanted to be overly concerned about the the female aspect. I remember at the very beginning, Karen O'Malley and I, Karen and I started together at the sports agency. She now works; she's a sub on the on the Sun and. I remember Karen and I were approached one day, I think it was a Friday morning at Ibrook's when when someone came over to us and said, we would like to get you two into the Scottish football writers because at that time women still couldn't go. I think you could go as a guest, but we couldn't be a full member or or something along those lines. It was a a political element to it. And I remember feeling a bit, at that time, a wee bit self-conscious about it all and also being very wary of being used as someone else's pawn in an argument. And then when I was here, when I was working at Celtic, the football writers had a vote just to allow women guests to go to the dinner. Like By that point, I was a, a member and football writers were accepted members. But women as a gender weren't allowed at the dinner unless they were football writers. And that was challenged. And it got very, very bitter for a, for a time. And I think the first vote lost by maybe two votes or three votes. It was very, you know, it was very, very tight and at that point it felt awkward and I was on a desk at that point at the Evening Times where every member of the desk voted against it so I don't think you can afford to allow yourself to be bogged down in that you can I think quite easily but it changed the following year it was challenged again and it got through, it got passed and it's actually amazing how quickly a cultural change takes place once you get over the first once it becomes the norm in actual fact, people's concerns—the laugh for all, for me always was uh, people saying you'll have all these women in and wanting their photograph taken with footballers and their photograph taken with managers. The the most I ever see at the football <laughs> writers are the mate like guy all the guys like guys cousins and brothers and mates all hogging football. That's yeah. what I tend to see. <laughs> um, but I think it's amazing that a cultural shift can take hold fairly quickly. And a in a positive well, yeah. way, and I and I don't, I, I honestly can't say I've ever felt anything untoward. I don't think anyone's ever said any, anything to me that's made me feel self-conscious. Maybe there's been, maybe there were things said about me. I, I don't know, but I've never felt it. And I, I would also say that the football writers as a whole who work in this environment are, there's a kind of unique pressure to it, uh, and I don't just mean in terms of your working environment. But in terms of juggling it with family commitments, it's a very peculiar industry at mm-hmm. times for crossing over family commitments and things happening late at night or you have to let people down or you can't be somewhere. So I think there is a camaraderie that comes with right. people who understand yeah. those kind Absolutely, of hours. Yeah. So I have to say, I felt the people that I work with, the colleagues that I've worked with, not just in the newspapers i work, but in a wider sense, a fairly warm community. It's quite a dry sense of humour. Uh, and I think most of us understand the complexities involved in juggling the hours required to do the job.
0: I mean, I don't want to, to have a sweeping generalisation here of like football writers aren't always the best read, which is surprising for journalists. Mm-hmm. But you, I would say you're probably one of the better reads of the journalists. I, I I can probably uh, pick some of the ones who yeah. I've, I've had book conversations with.
1: Yeah, yeah. There, you'd be surprised. I think. Yeah. Uh, there's a few. Uh, Hugh McDonald, obviously, was a literary editor of the of the Herald at, mm-hmm. at one point, but I think for most, of I think most of us would probably read, maybe not to the same extent and the same degree. I mean, Hugh McDonald's probably the, the yeah. toye amongst <laughs> us. Uh, I wouldn't compare myself there. But books for me have been a have been a constant all through my life. Books have been a constant from my earliest memories, and uh, to now I, I can't imagine not having a book. Yeah. I can't imagine. I always have a book in my bag always have a book at my bedside table always have a book in the car just in case I'm stuck somewhere and I need something to read
0: so maybe that's an indication then of the, the, <laughs> the you've got so many books on the go the agonies <laughs> that you know we, we've gone back and forth in terms of arranging this mm. podcast I and mean, like, I did get your choice and I know even as we speak there's probably other titles oh, running through so if we start with the the first question which is a favourite book from your childhood
1: first one I remember Loving it's a book called The Didicoi by Rumour Gordon, which we read, I think, in primary four. And I remember we were reading a, a chapter every afternoon. The teacher would, would read it out to us in class. You'd all mm. sit down, the teacher reads the chapter. And I remember just having to go and get this book out of the library because I just I couldn't bear to have to wait and, and running through it. And it, it, it's just, it's funny, it's you're going back to 1984, 1985. So you're going back a considerable distance, 35 years or whatever. And um, so many of the references in that book remain prevalent today. It's about a, a girl who comes from the travelling community into this really small, close-knit English community. Being the outsider, you know, just feeling like the outsider. Not just in because you know you're not a part of uh, you know a 2.2 family, but just really small details that, that mark you out as different, and I loved it. I absolutely adored it. I actually can still remember drawing the caravan, me to draw this caravan that Kizzy lived in, and I actually can still remember what, what it looked like and all the detail of it. I, I think that would be the first book I remember being entranced by, and I reread it. And actually, when I was when I had Eva, who's my eldest, I bought it so that uh, I could give it. Up.
0: Because I was actually going to ask you that, given you know the fact that it was obviously such a made such an indelible mark, in you yeah. as a child, as your kids have got to that age, have you encouraged them to read it, or have you read it to them, or have you wanted them to kind of have that same love for it that you did? They
1: did, I gave it to. I bought it when Eva. I think Eva was. I think actually my husband bought it for me for Eva when Eva was born, and I don't think she ever took it the way that I did. However, if we move on, Charlotte's Web. Is another one. Hmm. Again, I remember reading an excerpt from Charlotte's Web in a comprehension in primary school. You know, you used to have a small passage and then you'd have six questions. And I remember thinking, I've got to read that. (laughs) Like, going to the library and thinking, I've got to get this book out. And uh, I read Charlotte's Web to Eva and I think I traumatised both of us reading Charlotte's Web to Eva. We were both inconsolable at at the end. And uh, I would not watch DT (laughs) like <laughs> so, um, uh, but yeah, I think I think you do. I think the great thing about books is you always want to share it. I think the thing about a book is you, all, if you read it and you're enthused by it, you're desperate for someone to read it, so you've got that to talk about. Because
0: I'm always uh, curious about as a parent. Cause I've, I've I've told the story on this podcast before about my my three who are all adults now. My oldest daughter Louise reads sometimes. Rebecca is the middle one; she's a voracious reader. Andrew who's the youngest; doesn't read at all. Even to the point, he won't even read my books. Now, I'm I'm absolutely fine with that. But I know some. I've spoke to other parents who not that they would be appalled or anything, but they just they find it hard to, to understand or accept that their kids wouldn't be into books.
1: Uh, absolutely. I I sometimes query the parentage of, of all my kids. <laughs> like <laughs> Eva, Eva loves books. She reads all the time. Again, from earliest memory, she loved a book. When she was a toddler I used to think it was because I had a baby and she would follow me about with the book and I'd think this is because you know I actually have to sit down and pay some attention to the, 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 the child and not the, not the baby and I used to, the beginning of Mother's Guilt, you know. But she, from the minute that she could read from going to school she always read and it's funny, she's a real observer, Eva. She's very quiet and she watches everything. So she loves reading, uh, she loves writing, she's very creative, very arty. But hates sport, hates all kinds of sport. Doesn't like, uh, hates football. Knows nothing about football. Has no interest in football. I, I I I lost that one early on. My son is nine. Joseph is nine. Who is a reluctant reader, but who's slowly, slowly coming into. He's just sort of picking up like the Diary of Olympic kids and yeah. the David Williams and stuff. But by this age, Eva had got through, you know, Harry Potter's and. So he wouldn't have the same appetite. However, he's football mad. So, <laughs> uh, so I'm thinking, well, <laughs> like half of my influences are, are wearing off. And the, the wee one, the youngest one, um, Beth, likes a book. She likes a story still small enough to like being read to, and is just slowly beginning to read herself. I think she she might be more like Eva Joseph. Is a is a very very logical, really logical boy, which is completely. Uh, at odds with me, very practical and uh, he loves maths like just has a natural aptitude for numbers and maths which I yeah. absolutely <clears throat> do not and neither does he <laughs> so like, <laughs> so yeah I think um, I think you do want to pass it on I think especially if you've had a love for a book and something that's left its mark, you want to see it, if they share it although it's funny, I remember my mum giving me Anne of Green Gables and saying to me I love this book like eh uh, we, the nuns used to read it like that every afternoon, and I loved it, I could never wait, and I remember being thinking, I'm not going to like something that you like, <laughs> you know, and then going yeah. back and reading it, and, and I did um, enjoy it, but sometimes I think maybe, yeah, it, it's just about a certain independence in somewhere that you have to see, and I'll find my own path, and funnily enough, I felt that with, uh, with Eva, I remember buying some Judy Blooms, because at 11, 12, 13, I loved all these Judy Bloom books. And Eva was not, not captivated by them at all, which I can understand. Yeah. So, different worlds, different owners.
0: Because that takes us on to, you, you mentioned Judy Bloom, and when I asked you your second choice, which would be a favourite book from your kind of more formative mm-hmm. years. And although I know the name, it's not like books I, I was familiar with. Although when I was, I didn't realise that she's, I think she's about 81 now. Yeah. But she's also apparently, you know, in particular America, there's a, there's a a thing in certain states in America where books are constantly challenged if they've been taught in schools, and apparently mm-hmm. she's one of the most challenged authors by people mm-hmm. in America, because a lot of parents, probably particularly you know, those fundamentalist evangelical yeah. communities, are uncomfortable with the kind of subjects that she's talking about, which which makes me think there's obviously real merit in her book. Real booklet. validity
1: to it. Yeah, for me, I think, like many people of our kind of generation, who come from a very Catholic background. You don't have social media the way that you do now. And so there was a real education element to it, a social education element about things that just hadn't really been discussed. About first relationships, about sex, about an emotional awareness, about the first steps into relationships with people of the opposite sex. But done in a way that's very, very delicate. Mm. It's got a very even hand. She also broached very complex subjects beyond that. Uh, There's like uh, subjects about um, weight problems with girls and self perception. If you think most of these books are written in the 70s.
0: You mentioned a book book, earlier on. I mean, that's still as relevant now as probably even more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I loved them. And to be fair, it goes in stages. I think there were books that would be very much designed for younger age groups at 10, 11, and 12. Uh, sort of end of primary, start of high school and all the friendship roles hmm. and where, where do you fit in to that, which are all very interesting and then going up, you know, there's it gets more serious. Uh, certain books, I would say, wouldn't be appropriate just now for 12-year-olds but maybe explores first sexual relationships and things like that. But it wasn't things that we were discussing. Yeah. You know, it's not things that you're sitting down and discussing whereas I think now we'd all be fairly open about that. Even with your kids, like you're talking about, I think culturally we've all changed a bit. I think in school they talk about much more things, whereas these were, it opened my eyes to things that had never been really discussed with anyone at all. And I loved them. I absolutely loved them, apart from the fact that some of it felt quite illicit, of <laughs> course. I absolutely adored them. But it's also so fluent, it's beautifully written, and it, it's so heavy in dialogue, but authentic dialogue that characters are plausible and well-rounded and there, there's depth and scope to them that I, I really loved. I, I just remember by about second or third year, I think there just wasn't a, a, a book by Judy Bonham that I hadn't hadn't read. And so many of them have stayed with me. Uh, and when I bought, I think I bought Eva, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, which is just fantastic. stuff fantastic. Kid with all these problems, and her parents are divorcing, or arguing, and she's writing these letters to God. Like, you know, what do I do? And mm-hmm. uh, it's just fantastic. It's just, uh, it, it was a, a a chat about things I had never heard out with adult conversation, and he was dropping on adult conversation. These were things like even divorce. It wasn't really talked about hugely, you know. Yeah.
0: And I mean, I think the fact again when I was just doing some research I think eighty-two million copies of a book sold, and that tells you everything you need to know. Yeah, yeah. But within your answer, as I say, when you were sending me back, there was a couple of also what you called your go-to books, which would, again, maybe step on from Judy Bloom. Yeah,
1: yeah, that would be going probably when I just first started university. I went, studied English literature and history at Glasgow. It's funny, I, I was so close to not doing English, and I was reluctant to do English. I'm not entirely sure why. I really wanted to do psychology and history, and at class we pick three subjects. I was going to do psychology and history and philosophy, and there was a clash. So I would, it ended up uh, psychology and history was a big clash, and history was the one that I really wanted to do, along with psychology. So I ended up I went for English, but I kept thinking I've made the wrong choice here. I don't know if I want to study English, and of course. I really enjoyed the course and I actually enjoyed the literary side more than I enjoyed the, the history side and it just opened my eyes to a world and a whole genre of books that I think I would never, ever have read voluntarily. I think second year, you know, we had a compulsory course in Shakespeare. It was the first time I'd ever done any Shakespeare. I hadn't done Shakespeare at school, I'd seen Romeo and Juliet or read my brother's copy of Romeo and Juliet, but I'd never studied Shakespeare. Yeah. And I, adore, I absolutely loved it. I still love it. Right. I still think, God, the foresight and how we actually... None of us change. Like, you go through centuries, and the same problems that we follow as well are the problems that have plagued people through it, the ages. I
0: have, a, I have a real... Not a bee in my bonnet, but we did Shakespeare, a couple of plays at school, and I hated them. I think it was the language. And I, yeah. I always felt... Subsequently when my my kids were were studying it. And if the play they were studying was on at the theatre, we went to see it and I loved watching the play and I always felt they were written to be watched rather than... To read, I think you're absolutely
1: right. We had an amazing professor at uni and I can't remember his name, but he brought it to life Mm -hmm. so vividly and I think that's important too. I think if the person who's talking you through it has a very obvious enthusiasm and passion for it, it's hard to ignore it. But even things like all the sonnets... I loved poetry. I never thought in my life I would have liked any of this stuff. So it was a real awakening for me about stuff. But the the go-to book you reference is Great Expectations every time. Every time. I love it. I just, I love everything about it. I love the language. I love the way it's written. I love the story. It was actually written as a a journalism piece. It was actually written as an instalment in a, a newspaper. So it's very... The article, like every chapter, has this real cliffhanger. It's almost like a a soap opera, Mm -hmm. like because that was people's entertainment. So you're you're putting this in the paper. That's how he was
0: earning his money. It wasn't a one-off.
1: So you're uh, these chapters end with great drama every time. So you're going back to see what happens. But again, I adored it. I just uh, the unrequited love aspect of it. But Joe Gargery for me is just the absolute solid. The, the man you want your the man, the man that you want them to be because you know, I always feel the,
0: with Dickens like, again a lot of maybe what would be considered classic literature and, and sometimes it can be a bit seem a bit off-putting but yeah. actually once you actually particularly I think somebody like Charles Dickens as yeah. you say that kind of storytelling element once you're in the books they yeah. absolutely brilliant
1: oh, I think if, if you can get over your own prejudice about it when I was at school I had read Hard Times for my RPR I think and uh, I hadn't hugely enjoyed it but I enjoyed it more as I went into it, I enjoyed it more as I wrote my stuff and I had a, a greater understanding of it. I enjoyed it more. So when we came to, to university, we were given this, the expectations. I was, um, I always remember coming home on the subway and starting to read it on the subway and just thinking, like, I just couldn't put it down. Could not put it down. It was just, <laughs> to be uh, fair, you'd just be going in a circle. <laughs> <haven't you? laughs> Loved it, absolutely adored it. And I, I don't know when the last time was I read it now, but it's a book that I... Go back to everything, even just to read some of it, yeah. even just to go in. And I love the start of it, absolutely love the beginning of it, and, and Pip and his. Uh, you know, I think we've all felt like that at some point in our life. You know, like out of kilter in a social situation, and you're feeling clumsy, and your language feels off. I think everyone can identify with that at some point in your life.
0: Because it was interesting, the other book that you mentioned uh, was *Crime and Punishment*, mm-hmm. and. I I think it took me about four or five attempts to read it, and I kept getting stolen at the same bit. And I, I don't know if it was just you know particularly you know with the Russian names there was like yeah, yeah. the same character had about four different derivatives of the name. Eventually, I managed to push through, and I know I knew a couple of people who absolutely loved oh, the book, and, and I thought right well, I'm going to eventually get it, and I got to the end. I went, well,
1: that's it. I, <laughs> I was uh, underwhelmed. I had this uh, sort of purple, black, and purple copy of Crime and Punishment, was a second-hand copy given to me by someone else with this tiny print uh, and it was really quite light. So I went on a girls holiday, I think I was maybe 17 or 18, 19, somewhere around that kind of age. And uh, I always took book- I always took a pile of books I would take the It's really light and get it in my handbag and stuff. And I remember ...somebody around the pool, you <laughs> what, what are you reading? <laughs> and I'm just being aware of what an arse of my <laughs> life, like, you know, what, like sitting, reading Crime and Punishment. But uh, it made quite an impression, and I enjoyed it. But my other one, the one that I really love, again, is uh, Far From the Madden Crowd uh, by Thomas Hardy. I love Thomas Hardy. The first Thomas Hardy I read was Tess. I'm sure, every, I'm sure we've all covered Tess at some point in, in high school or whatever... And I, I, I loved Tess. Once I got into it, it, took me forever. Like, maybe like, having to get past the lying out I think I might have been about 15 or 16, having to get past the lying initially and open your mind to it a bit. But I loved the story of Tess. And then when I read Far From the Madden Crow, it just it blew me away. Absolutely blew me away. And I still go back, I still think Gabriel Oak, think I still have a fancy for Gabriel. <laughs> well, I'll, I
0: have to say that, you know, on the back of these podcasts, I'm going to have to. I've never read any Thomas Hardy, and that, you're about the second or third person who has oh, really? absolutely raved about the book. I so just think his I'm vision to to
1: at that point in, in life for, for things that were going on that again wouldn't be talked about at all, and I, I loved it.
0: Well, you are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest in this episode, the football writer, Alison McConnell. Alison, we are on to your third choice, and that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And again, <laughs> there's... Uh, well, to be fair, you actually gave me, rather than specific books, there were certain authors yeah. that you you suggested...
1: I think there are certain authors that would be ubiquitous. I love, uh, now, over the last ten years or so, maybe more, I read a lot of crime fiction. I love crime fiction, partly because I think it's fast. Uh, it's really fast-paced. I don't have a huge amount of time now. I'm not sure I would have the time, for example, to sit down and get through tests, because it's my life feels so stop-start by the time you get an hour at night. I'm falling asleep. So I think certain books, you need a a Holiday, or you need a run at it, yeah, you, you need to get yeah. into it to to really immerse yourself in the book. So, I've, I've read loads of crime fiction, I think, because it's relatively easy to read and I, and I enjoy it, I love it. But, I think, in that respect, there are certain authors that just have a universal appeal. So, I love Ann Tyler. You, I think, were the first person to direct me towards Ann Tyler. I think they, our novels are all set in Baltimore. They're, they seem to be about nothing and about everything simultaneously, but delivered in a very fluent and accessible way. Uh, again, it's not seamless and lives aren't perfect. It just seems to bring in the fractured element of families so often.
0: Do you know, I, I, the first time I read Anne Tyler it was on the back of, I think I'd read a Roddy Doyle interview, because at the time, I love Roddy Doyle books, yeah. and he cited her as one of his influences. As one of those people that he thought, if I could write yeah. even half as well as Anne Tyler, and I thought, well, brought, yeah. let, well, if I like him, and then as soon as I started reading, I can't remember which. I think it may have been Breathing Lessons was the mm-hmm. first one, and, and I was totally blown away, and yeah. I just thought, she's her writing is just perfect. Yeah, it's
1: oh, excellent, and it it has a, I think, like all great practitioners of their art, whether it's a footballer or or an author, I think. It looks effortless. Hmm. It looks so easy to do, uh, which should be an indicator of uh, of someone's talent. I think when when Absolutely, something reads yeah. yeah. like that, you know uh, how difficult it is to do. That's that's a talent. It's a genuine gift. Funny enough, that... Roddy Doyle would be another one that yeah. I would try to get. Actually, Paddy Clark, ha, ha ha might have made it into my formative list. I think I read Paddy Clark maybe when I was about seventeen or eighteen. That is uh, a brilliant, brilliant. Paddy thing. Clark is, is beautiful. It's just so so lovely. It's actually um, got
0: an end, and it takes your breath away.
1: Yeah.
0: Once you find out why, it's, why, why the title yeah. is called Paddy Clark. Yeah, yeah.
1: And the Barrytown trilogy. All I loved all those books. I probably read the Barrytown trilogy the same holiday. I like <laughs> Time and Punishment. You know, like <laughs> just to get a wee bit of Pilate
0: credibility back.
1: <laughs> but um, yeah, love, but the Roddy Doyle. The the other ones that I would say for books I would recommend is Denise Minor. Uh, and I know you and I have spoken about Denise Mine I feel like I've turned into Denise Mine a stalker, because uh, whenever she's there are any events at the Mitchell Library or through I write, a friend and I often go and we, we've been to umpteen of these events. Well, not, I, I would
0: say to people, especially people who aren't used to going to book events, if if you get a chance to go and see Denise, yeah. go because she's brilliantly entertaining and it's so warm. And well, when my daughter Rebecca was at Strathclyde Junior, I think it was first or second year, and she was studying some English at the time, and Denise was appearing. And I said to Rebecca, go along and see her because she's brilliant, she's really entertaining. And she went along and she really loved it, but she said there was only like about a dozen people there. And well, I thought, there's all these, I don't know how many students are studying yeah, English, yeah. and you've got this brilliant oh, Scottish well. writer who's just brilliantly entertaining Excellent. and on the doorstep. Yeah.
1: Uh, the Garnet Hill trilogy, I think, I i actually couldn't, I've enjoyed all of her books, I loved the Garnet Hill tr- trilogy. Uh, The Paddy Meehan series at the beginnings of it, I I thoroughly enjoyed. And I think, again, it's just so accessible and easy to read. I think I would definitely recommend. If someone said to me, I'm just looking for something to pick up that I know is going to take me immediately. Uh, I don't have to bear with it, and I don't Mm. need any patience. Just, I think Denise Mina would definitely be among my recommendations for them.
0: Because the other one you mentioned was Don Winslow. and the book, the first one of his that I read was The Power of the Dog mm. and it was through one of my colleagues at Celtic, Tony Kong and I think we'd all had a conversation one day yeah. in one of the, the press boxes about Don Winslow and he'd give me the book and, you know, sometimes you see a book and it's a big stopper and you could be kind of intimidated by it. As soon as you read it, it, it just... Uh, it was one of those books that you cannot put down. It's absolutely you know, I, I think The Power of the Dog actually might have
1: been the first Don Winslow that I read too. Uh, someone gave me Don Winslow and I'm not sure who it was. I think it would either be you and Graham or Hugh gave me a loan or, or or recommended it to me. And I think The Power of the Dog was the first one I read too and, and I loved it. But the cartel for me is outstanding. And you know he was a journalist too, he's an investigative journalist yeah. <clears> for a long time. And I think so much of it there's so much depth.
0: As it, parts of it, I'm not quite sure if it's is it fact or fiction, because yeah, th- it is so it all, detailed. In, and then you can you see yeah, a news report. Absolutely,
1: and it's, it, it's mirroring it. Well, I think so much of that comes from his his years as a journalist and, and the research that gone into it. I think he's unparalleled in terms of the knowledge of that whole environment. He's astounding, and I also love his boldness now on social media. He's uh, challenging yeah. Donald Trump all the time. He's challenging everything that's coming out of the White House.
0: Because I think he offered was it not something like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars? Stephen if,
1: King, Yeah. Yeah, if
0: the White House would actually hold a proper yeah. press conference.
1: Stephen King's another one I'd recommend. I think Stephen King's an outstanding writer. Do so you think there's a, a there can be a snobbery about crime writing that people are quick to dismiss it as pulp? I think it's very unfair. Well,
0: do you know what's really interesting because I think you're absolutely right, and I spoke to Willie Mayleaf. Professor Wally Mealy at Glasgow Uni for this podcast, and he's a big Stephen King fan. He even did supervise a PhD on Stephen well, King, but also the I think the twenty twenty Booker Prize Lee Child is among yeah. the judges, which is really an interesting departure because crime books don't get considered yeah. in the same vein. And actually, you've, you 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 as you say, you do a lot of crime crime books. There's a lot of top quality writing. Excellent, that.
1: absolutely excellent. Right, I mean, I I would say there, there's no need for a line between real literature and, and Crime literature, some of it is exceptional. Mm-hmm. It really is exceptional. And it's funny, though, crime now att- attracts a huge percentage of female readers. I'm not sure what that's about, but there's uh, when you turn up at these events, it's nearly always women that are there. It's, uh, do you think it's some of serious? that's to do? Because anything
0: I've ever read in terms of readership surveys, women do read more books than men.
1: Yeah, but even for crime, I think it's it, crime fiction is unusual and it's so heavily weighted towards a, a female audience at times, and yet it's not all—it's not always reflected in the, the character. Nearly all the the protagonists are male protagonists. which is another one. Why Denise Mina is quite different in that she has very powerful female characters too. Also, it's worth to note I've not read any of them yet, but Lisa Gray, um, who's a football writer, she's, for, she's a football writer for PA, has actually just released. A, a a book, a crime writers book, I've not had a chance to catch up with it. But the last I heard it had sold something like hundred and fifty thousand copies or Was it not more? through
0: Amazon and they you know, they were so impressed with it they, they yeah, they've really I've, pushed yeah, it. Yeah, and, and
1: they've done she's got a three <clears throat> book deal. So, Scott,
0: obviously that whole sort of Scottish law that yeah. William McIvanny cited is is beginning. There's a real tradition mm-hmm. of crime.
1: Oh crime yeah, books. absolutely. Uh, absolutely, I think yeah, Lisa's are based in America, but I know exactly what you're saying. There is a real—you think of Al McDermott too. Like there, there's a real Ian um, Rankin, Ian Rankin yeah. obviously, uh, a real clutch of Scottish crime writers. Rankin's another one I would recommend. To, to, to See the do. list. The list is uh, never ending. Yeah, it's not. Also, Should we do a,
0: an Alison McConnell podcast part two, and you can <laughs> just choose five <laughs> completely different?
1: Elmer Leonard. I love Elmer Leonard for the. I think his dialogue is exceptional. It's almost, you, you actually have to tune your ear to it, if that makes sense, you have to really...
0: There's actually anybody who's re- listening to this who's an aspiring writer. There's uh, Elmer Leonard does, I think he's top... I think it's his top ten tips for writing. Right. Read them before you want to... Because to, to, they are so brilliant, so precise. Was, and even things like, which I think I do now is, he said, when people talk, they said. So he said, she said. They don't, you know, they don't... You. you your dialogue explains how they express yeah, it. You yeah. don't need to tell people yeah. or stuff. It He's is quite like Roddy simplistic. Doyle.
1: He's quite like Roddy Doyle like that. You know, you, the, <clears> the way it is presented, yeah. and there's an authenticity to it that I think is very, very difficult to get right.
0: But as you were saying earlier on about Anne Tyler, it looks effortless, it, it reads the effortlessly, yeah. but you know how difficult yeah. that oh, is to...
1: Absolutely, absolutely. If that easy, would all be doing Exactly.
0: <laughs> if we go from books that you would recommend, and, you know, I think we were almost going through a library there... Um, <laughs> Now the opposite end of that uh, spectrum is a book that <laughs> I couldn't pay you to read again.
1: The Daily I Hated it. Absolutely <laughs> hated it. I hate that whole genre. I hate sci fi. I hate that oh, it's just nonsense. It's sure nothing people, for me. There'll be
0: people who are listening to this they'll be shouting out
1: <laughs> names
0: of books. So for example, I'm not I don't read a lot of sci fi books, but I did read some Ian S. Banks books which were actually
1: God, Street Street's another Which
0: get, <laughs> Which actually he's he's written some really good. Um, yeah, sci-fi that Ian books. S.
1: Banks was his uh, sci fi name and I love Ian Banks. I've read all Ian Banks. Espadar Street would be one of my favourites. Well, can actually. I recommend
0: can I recommend uh, a, a sci-fi no. <laughs> that a sci fi book that I think you would enjoy? So that see that Michelle Faber who wrote The Crimson yes, and the Petal, he wrote yes. a book called The Book of Strange New Things. Which is basically it's the story is if Basically, it's a missionary who goes to an alien world and is kind of trying to, uh, you know, preach to to convert them. It's a it's a brilliant. If you take away from the fact that sci fi you don't like sci fi, it's brilliantly written.
1: The only one that I would say I I've kind of crossed into it, it would be a couple of Margaret Atwoods, uh, where she's you know. It's a kind of it's the ha- yeah, thing. I suppose the, handma- the Handmaid t- the Handmaid's Tale. And then there was Oryx and Craig, but it just doesn't. It's not a genre that I would ever choose to read. And now I'm very discerning with my time because I don't have a lot of it. I need a book that I like. I, ha- I have no time for the coming movie sci-fi. I remember one time on holiday, one of my friends is a scientist. My friend Carol is. Has a different mind from us, and uh, she was reading this tome, I think, maybe like 750 words or something like that, like ploughing through this uh, absolutely humongous book, sci fi, of course. And, uh, and I said to her, How's your book? And she said, I, It's just getting good. I said, Just getting good. What page are you on? She said, 628. <laughs> I think that's just sci fi, and it's just t- it just doesn't take me at all. Another one, I remember. Years ago, Matthew Onze, who I sat beside at the Evening Times sports desk, recommending a book to me, and he raved about it, and he raved about. it. Got to read this, got to read it, and um, sci-fi, and it was, I can't even remember the name of it. But he still goes on about the fact that I didn't like it. And he's, I, I, I keep thinking, how can you possibly have enjoyed that? It's nonsense.
0: See, I, I was kind of, I was like you. I have to be honest. Of, of like, I just thought it's sci-fi. It's not. It's not from. It's all gobbledygook. And I forced myself to read a couple of Ian S. Banks books, because I really liked his oh, yeah. books as Ian Banks, and I kind of had to tell myself, right, just take it as the book and the story, you know, all the other stuff about the, the kind of world, it's like the culture world that he created, and it's all these different books, and there was one or two of them actually, as as novels with stories and, and plots and characters, but actually, I really enjoyed them, and mm-hmm. it, it took me by, it didn't make me start going through the whole genre, but yeah. actually... I kind of felt a better person from having say okay. You've you've tried it. Sorry.
1: Tried it once. Um, I don't know. The other one I remember probably being about fourteen or fifteen, and I think I might just have read *The Outsiders*, which I absolutely loved. You know, like, that that's a real cult teenage book, mm-hmm. and there was a movie too. Yeah. And hey, God, I I think I could still quote quote it where I've at them. But uh, then reading in in English, getting Laurie Lee's when I walked out one midsummer's Morning and thinking, God, it's almost like the opening scene of The Outsiders or when I walked out from the darkness of the movie house. And I'm thinking, oh, this would be great. And reading it and thinking, what is this? <laughs> what is this? Well, do like no.
0: Chris Dolan, who was the very first guest on this podcast, and if he, when he's listening to this, he'll be shouting at you because he like he. not only did he love the book, but he effectively kind of recreated that journey wow. uh, to Spain, uh, busked around Spain, and is is writing a book based on his journey and on the kind of changing face of Spain based on on that book which he absolutely loved. I
1: do think uh, it was a real immaturity on my part at that age. I suspect if I had to go back and read it again now, I would have a much greater appreciation of it. But I think from from this <laughs> the preparing yourself for the outsiders and <laughs> and, uh, and opening Laurie Lee, it's um, yeah two worlds colliding.
0: I mean, when you mentioned there about uh, Matthew Lindsay. Uh, your colleague recommended a book to you and then you're hating it. See, when people read a, recommend <laughs> he, he a book still wears a graduate. <laughs> well, I was going to... You know, like sometimes when people recommend a book to you and you would be the same if you recommend a book to me or anyone yeah. else, it's because A, you love the book, but also you think that I, I would love the book. Yeah. See, when you don't, you, did you have any qualms about saying to him? By the way, that was rubbish. I like, kept, kept asking me, kept
1: asking, did you read it? And I was like, I can't read it. I can't get <laughs> past the first like two chapters. Have it back, and he, uh, he kind of took it a bit personally.
0: <laughs> because you know, like some of the books that you really love, if like you say right, you need to read this, and, and somebody reads it, and
1: Yeah, it's like a personal rejection, isn't it? It's the, like a weird, part I of your like, soul. Yeah. There's a part of your soul invested in that. Yeah, I think there <laughs> might be. I'm gonna to have to go and apologise to Matthew.
0: <laughs> but no, no sci-fi. For, for no you. sci-fi.
1: Absolutely no sci-fi. Uh, I think too. Whether are, I, I don't know if I'm just at a particular stage in my life where you're working all the time and your nights are spent ferrying kids from one place to another and doing dinners and life's busy. I always like to read before I go to sleep. Like I've always always read for a bit before going to sleep. But now I have the com- the competition of Netflix because I love a box set and I like an hour Mm -hmm. at night with a glass of wine or a cup of tea um, depending where we are in the week if I can start cracking (laughs) open the wine Uh, because it just gives you an hour an hour apiece I'm quite discerning, I don't watch a lot of TV at all but I like a box set so just trying to squeeze in reading as well which is why I'm always tired in the morning (laughs) because I work too much and then I'm up late reading as well but
0: do you, have, do you ever watch any uh, sci fi boxes? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. No, 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 time for that. <laughs> <Very> <laughs> well, we're on to the, the fifth and final question, and that's either the last book that you've read or the book that you're currently reading.
1: I'm reading a few just now, like most people probably always have a, have a couple. See, on the
0: I'm, I'm the opposite, I only ever have one in the book. Go- I, I don't have the concentration to split my. I Mine mean, is sheer
1: laziness. That if one book's downstairs and opens upstairs, I'll pick a book off the shelf or sometimes if I'm waiting and someone calling me back or, or whatever. But uh, I've recently discovered uh, Laura Lippman who is just, I, I'm not sure where I've been to have missed Laura Lipman but loving her stuff. And Megan Abbott is another one that I, I've really.
0: Is it the American? Yeah, yeah,
1: but fantastically written. And so I've. I've just, I, I've, I've got a whole pile of books that I got for Christmas that I'm working through, but that would be one of them. Another one that I've just got, uh, my husband taught me at the weekend, there's a book called The Heart's Invisible Furies, which is uh, set in Ireland. I've only just started it, but uh, it's got a very promising beginning about quite complex subjects too. Because I was glad
0: you mentioned that, because I, I read that last year, and when you'd mentioned it, I went back, and I always remember the, the very beginning... so if I actually I'll I'll read the opening sentence because it Mm -hmm. actually
1: if if you read
0: this opening sentence and don't want to read the book yeah well it's funny
1: this is why I end up reading multiple books so Friday night uh, I come in from work and my husband said I bought you you a present and it was I got some books and I thought you would like that and so I basically poured a glass of wine my husband was taking my son out to football I thought just you know what it's like. Open the book, sat down, opened the book, and I read the first sentence, and I never moved for an <laughs> hour and a half because it just just takes you.
0: Well, I'll, I'll read this opening sentence. This is from *The Heart's Invisible Furies* by John Boyne. Long before we discovered that he had fathered two children by two different women, one in Dromalee and one in Clonakilty, Father James Monroe stood in the altar of the Church of Our Lady Star of the Sea in the parish of Galleen West Cork and denounced my mother as a whore. And I, I remember reading, and that whole scene... Shocking.
1: The first the, scene is shocking. The
0: scene, it actually... Because when you mentioned that, it immediately brought it back to me how...
1: Cruel. Dramatic the, the, and, that, and the uh, cruelty of it. It's a, uh, a
0: beautiful... I mean, absolutely beautiful, stunning book.
1: Yeah. Well, my husband had said um, to me, someone... Uh, I think someone he worked with, or a friend, someone had recommended it to him. And he'd said, I think you'll really enjoy this. And... I read, the, Friday night, I read the, the first couple of chapters and just, I was blown away by it. Which is why I always end up with multiple, <laughs> multiple books on the go. I'm always, impre- um, I have
0: to be honest, I'm always impressed when people have more than one book in on the go. Because I say, I, I, I have to just concentrate solely on one, otherwise I, I'll never finish anything.
1: Yeah, I do, I don't read a lot of, I have to say now, I read pretty much just fiction. I don't read a lot of historical Things which I think I probably should read more of, uh, so I maybe dip in and out of things like that, that are non-fiction, which I think I always need a fiction book to go in tandem with. Not that I've been doing much of it of late, I would have to say, but uh, but no, books have been. A, I couldn't imagine my life without a book.
0: Well, that takes me on to what would be my f- my final question as we're getting to the end of the podcast is, obviously, books have always been part of your life. You've been a writer for a long, long time. Have you ever thought of of actually? Or have you ever had a go at writing fiction yourself?
1: Uh, when I think when I was here, before I had to kids, I had done a creative writing class at Glasgow Uni, which I loved. I don't think I've ever thought about it seriously. I don't think I'd ever be good enough. I think as you get older, we all think we've got a book in us, or or, or you see aspects of your life is almost like coming through the pages of a book. My family, funnily enough, one of my sister-laws is always on at me, like, you should write a book, you should write a book, but I've never I've never felt a pull for it, I would have to say. I think maybe I, it's a bit like football, maybe I'm better being an observer <laughs> than a participant. But, yeah, I, I, I love good writing. Never say never. I love I, I would never say never. I just can't ever imagine a point in my life where I'll have time <laughs> to do anything other than than what I do now. And I, I'm a contented reader. I love to read it, it would definitely be one of the ways that I relax and I always have done. I always remember running off the, the school bus at primary school one Friday afternoon bucketing, absolutely bucketing and running home because I had a library book in my bag and thinking I just can't wait to just, just go lie on the sofa and read, read this book and I still have that feeling, I still I love the feeling of a new book which is why I have too many I have uh, every sort
0: of. You can never have too many books. You
1: can if you have <coughs> a small house that you share with four other people, but uh, I love the sense of anticipation and just if the removal of it. That, that you become, become absorbed in someone else's story to the point where your own becomes on hold for a wee while. And I think that's it's such a gift. Marianne Keyes, funnily enough, another writer that I would say, um, Marianne Keyes, who would probably go down as Chitlet again, which would be quite unfairly seen as a real snobby element to it, Marianne Keyes is like that, I find her a really, really strong writer a good writer, very funny which again, as you know yourself being funny on paper is a tremendously difficult thing to do Uh, I love her books, it's another author that I would say, if I know she has a book coming out, I'll make a point of Pre-ordering not or getting it when it comes out, and I love that too. Knowing there's a new book coming out, yeah, And, and, you can, of and, and you
0: can, you're almost guaranteed quality.
1: Absolutely, or yeah. you know you're going to enjoy it. You know, it's almost like coffee with, with one of your old pals, isn't it? Like you know you're you're going to enjoy it. You're going to go and and just be absorbed in something else for a while. I felt that actually, Denise Minors' last book. Mm. I got and kept for going on holiday. We went on holiday at the end of June, and I think, for the first three days. I never spoke to anyone. <laughs> it was like, hmm mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> just, just leave me and let me read. And I think it's 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 a beautiful thing to be able to give. And I'm very appreciative of books, in my life would be significantly worse without them.
0: That's the perfect way to end this podcast. Thanks very much, Thank Alison, you. for joining us. If you want to, to read any of Alison's choices, you can go to my website, www.paulcuday.com, where I think there'll be about 10 pages worth of choices <laughs> from everything that Alison said. But listen, thanks very much for joining us. It's been it a pleasure. Real, real pleasure. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at Podcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.